Today on episode number 233 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, John Warner shares about his new book, Why They Can't Write, Killing the Five-Paragraph Essay and Other Necessities. Produced by Innovate Learning, Maximizing Human Potential. Hello, and welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. On today's episode of Teaching in Higher Ed, I am welcoming back to the show, John Warner. John, welcome back to Teaching in Higher Ed. Thanks. It's very nice to be back. I figured since I was welcoming you back, rather than read your bio without you on the air, I could do it with you right here. So you are a columnist for the Chicago Tribune, a contributing blogger for Inside Higher Education, and an editor-at-large for McSweeney's Internet Tendency and the author or co-editor of seven books. The first half of the title of your new book is Why They Can't Write. And I know we won't be talking about this for too long because neither you nor I are too interested in pontificating about all the things that are wrong with our students. But let's, let's just spend a little bit of time. What are the usual diagnoses that we give for why, quote unquote, today's students can't write? Well, a lot of what you hear or what I hear, and I deal with this in the introduction of the book, particularly when I get out in the world and people hear that I'm a writer and I teach writing, and will start to lament about today's kids and the cell phones and the emojis and, you know, everybody gets a trophy and they're all coddled and entitled and this stuff. And one of the reasons why I wanted to write the book is because I started with a question, why can't they write? Because I, I saw my students struggling with writing and it not being a problem of skill or ability or, or even training necessarily what had happened before they got into class, but they had what I thought to be some very counterproductive attitudes towards writing and experiences with writing that seemed to really hinder what they were going to be able to experience in my class. So my goal was to explore that question. Why can't they write? And pretty quickly I realized that declaring students defective is kind of a dead end. If today's generation of students were defective, so is mine. (laughs) So were previous ones. You know, there's been laments about students not being able to write forever. Uh, In the book, I I quote a, a Harvard dean from the 1890s complaining about how poorly the students are writing. So if this is a constant complaint, but I still think there's something going on, my question is, what is going on? What What is underneath this? And that's what I tried to explore in the book. One of the arguments I make is we are in the midst of a shift in literacy brought about by digital technology. We are actually writing more than we ever have. That writing may take various forms like texting or people work somewhere where there's slack, which is a kind of constant internal combination of like water cooler talk with texting and Twitter all together. Uh, we need to help students learn how to navigate those things. And that means changes for people who teach writing. I have become 
less and less secure in my belief that teaching students academic writing really does them much of any favors in terms of academic writing in the form of sort of scholarly work, like a research paper in first year writing. That said, I want them to be able to think critically and write well in the ways we would think about academic writing at the core. So I think a lot of the complaints, particularly generationally, we see are things change. And to kind of browbeat students into being something that is no longer relevant in today's world strikes me as as a sort of fruitless and frustrating enterprise for both them and and me as their instructor. So it it becomes a process where we need to kind of collaborate on, on what's going on and what our goals are and how we can meet those. One of the big shifts that you talk about needing to happen is rather than us focusing on the students and, again, what's wrong with them in terms of not being able to adapt to our own standards, which perhaps are not terribly relevant for them present or future, is really to look then back at ourselves. So could you talk a little bit about just the overall diagnosis that you have if it's not about our students and we turn it toward ourselves? What is that diagnosis? Yeah, my belief is that we have a number of systemic problems when it comes to teaching writing. Some of them are rooted in the school reform process that I trace back to 1983's Nation at Risk, where we've gotten sort of a, a, a mania for standardized assessments, which has given rise to using things like the five-paragraph essay as a kind of shortcut or hack to help students pass these assessments, but it does little to help them develop as writers. One of the things I I believe to my core is that writing involves thinking and where we take thinking off the table by say giving them a, a prefab structure, we are preventing them from doing the kind of work that helps them develop as writers, develop what I call their writing practices. So we have a kind of system which privileges a curriculum which is not particularly well suited to developing as writers. We have also created a, a system where students fear failure and feel a lot of pressure to perform academically. Failure is a kind of necessary experience when it comes to, to writing, a, a failure of falling short and being able to try again. We have a pressure on systems where we're trying to do things like automate writing instruction through personalized learning or algorithmic grading, all of which are essentially alienating in the classroom and separate students and and teachers. And big picture, for the most part, we don't really resource teaching writing at the level of the human labor. You know, the average high school teacher has far too many students. They've spent 40% more time in the classroom than teachers in other developed countries. And People who have the kind of job that I used to have, a writing instructor off the tenure track, have student loads that are often double the recommended disciplinary maximums, which is 60 students a semester split between three sections of 20. That's the absolute maximum recommendation, and it is hard to find even a single non-tenured instructor or many tenured instructors who have 60 or fewer you know, maybe at some of the very elite places, but not where most of us work. So 
we say this thing is very important. Students need to learn how to write. They need to learn how to think critically. But we don't really put the resources in place that will help us do that. And the values we bring to it seem disconnected from what we say is important. So we say we want to teach students to think, but then we make them do standardized assessments. These these things will create a situation that, in my view, makes students alienated from writing, discouraged by writing, and draws a distinction in their minds between schooling, which is what they spend most of their time doing, and learning, which is what I think most of us want to happen. And so I wrote the book. <laughs> and... <laughs> You know, the first half is sort of what I think is the problem, and the second half is an approach towards a solution. But it's it's not mysterious. We know a lot about how best to teach writing. As I say often, it's it's very straightforward, but that doesn't mean it's simple. We kind of know what to do. We're just not really doing it. It's it's like a lot of things in our, our culture where the hard thing that is going to bring about a solution over time is overlooked in search of some sort of magic elixir that we hope will cure us, but magic doesn't exist, at least not in this realm. Let's talk a little bit more then about the prescription. And I know that you draw from more current knowledge in what we're learning, the scholarship of teaching and learning, and also some enduring philosophies in classical education. So could you talk a little bit about those two, I was going to say tensions, but that's not right, but those two yeah, I think there's, there's, I, I'm, you know, I'm deeply inspired by established scholarship and people like Maria Montessori and John Dewey. There's a central part of their approach to education, which puts the learner at the center. And I think, thankfully, and we hear it on your show often, there's a lot of momentum and enthusiasm for just that framing. You know, we can often have debates about what that looks like and what we're going to do in order to achieve that, but that's at least, I think, progress. And the way I conceive that in writing is to champion what I call the writer's practice, which is what we do as we are writing, the skills, attitudes, knowledge, and habits of mind of writers. And in the book, I analogize it to any any profession or even anything. We, we all have practices. A doctor has a practice. Lawyers have a practice. The the analogy I sort of think is most effective with writing is something like being a chef where, you know, a chef has to both be able to take a dish somebody else has made and deconstruct it and understand the components that went into it. Something a writer must be able to do when they read the writing of others, but they also need to be able to look in the fridge and the pantry and make something that we want to eat. And that involves the skills, attitudes, habits of mind, and knowledge of a chef. You know, they need to know how to saute, and they need to know how flavors combine. They need to have attitudes in place in terms of flavors or cuisine that they like, and, and writers are the same way. And so when we write, we want to practice these things, the skill of writing, but also the mentality we bring to writing, the attitudes, how we think about writing the habits of mind, one of the chief, one of which I think is the ability to embrace failure as an inevitable part of writing. And if we can get students practicing those practices from the beginning, I think we get to a place where writing becomes something that is transferable, something that even when a new occasion arises and it may be difficult, they have something to fall back on. 
and can make use of. And, you know, I've, I've tested it in my own courses and I, I believe it works. It's, it's not always easy. It doesn't happen instantly, but it is a way, I believe, of thinking about writing that puts every student on a trajectory to, to getting better and particularly getting better even when the class is over, which is one of my chief goals. That's fascinating that you ended with that point because one of the things that I reflect on a lot, both for learners, our, our students, but also for myself too, is that it's too easy to think about that there's some end destination we're going to get to, whether that's becoming a better teacher or becoming a better writer or, or whatever it is we're talking about, thinking that there's a there there <laughs> there's, <laughs> versus right. that it's a ongoing process. I just wrote a blog post on the plane, although I never know with these things if they'll actually, you know, be shared at some point. I think it probably will, but I was talking about listening to myself on the podcast and that whenever we have a chance to listen to ourselves or to observe ourselves, whether that's through video feedback, some some kind of way of looking at our own practice, that at first it's just really I called it a dissonance of just oh my gosh, it's so hard to do that. It's ridiculous. That yeah. kind of feedback is so potent. But if you can get past that part where today I can listen to myself and I don't love everything, you know, there's <laughs> like, it is still, I have that real critical lens, but I'll start to be able to hear, oh, you just started having this filler word come into your conversations. Why are you using that same phrase? It doesn't need to be there. Try to just get more comfortable with the silence or asking more concrete questions. And I get better through doing that, but I don't ever feel like there's going to be some destination to which point I don't need to listen to myself and, and get better at what I'm trying to do with this podcast. And, and But I realize with my own writing, I need to be better at doing that too, that it is also a process. It's not like I'll be there someday or I'll never get there because that's only for the great writers. That's exactly right. One of the most important habits of mind, in addition to sort of embracing failure and knowing that we're never going to kind of arrive at a destination, is that reflective process, is the ability to, to look at what we've done and take a good look at it and understand it and assess it and grow from it. I, I tweeted about this when the physical copies of the book arrived, and it's very exciting when the physical form of a book that's taken, you know, in some cases years to to come to life shows up. But then traditionally, I, I can't even bear to crack it open and read it because I'm worried it's terrible. And it sort of shames me forever. Now, this book, I actually did start reading it and I was not shamed by it. I was, I was pleased. And I don't know if that's my ego has become stronger or the book is better than my others or what, but the, the ability to think through our own work and assess it honestly, and to then take action based on that reflection. That's what writers do. I mean, that's, that's what podcasters do. That's what musicians do. That's what chefs do. That's what doctors do. It's what everybody does. And I think that skill really should be the focus of, of writing courses. One of the things I, I struggled with over the years and evolved in my own teaching was abandoning the idea that my goal was to get students to produce the best possible written artifact at the end of the semester. Because if that was my goal, there were all kinds of things I could do to help them achieve that, that would short circuit their wrestling with the problem I had set in front of them. I could coach them on all kinds of things because I've seen all the problems that writers can fall into when they're doing the stuff I was asking them to do. But I realized that I was, I was cheating them in terms of having the experiences that they'll learn from. 
a lot of learning to write in my view is is really a reinvention of the wheel for each individual themselves i can i can tell students things until i'm blue in the face but they really have to you just have to wrestle with it and then find out that you've maybe lost that match and and then get into the ring again and it it happens over and over and over again and that's what I want for what we do when students learn to write is to give them these experiences that allow them to wrestle and they may be defeated. And and part of what I think is instructions we have to do is to make that defeat a, a true victory of a kind because the wrestling has been so worth it. And that's a very difficult balance to strike depending on what you're teaching, depending on who's looking over your shoulder in terms of what your students are doing and depending a lot on what you value when you grade. And I wish I could say that I had all those those tensions figured out myself. I certainly don't. But that's another process, how we're going to teach and how we're going to relate to our students. I find that stuff fascinating and endlessly interesting, but it is it does carry its own set of frustrations, no doubt. My husband, Dave, has a podcast called Coaching for Leaders, and he recently had the honor of getting to talk to Seth Godin. And for people who may not be aware of who Seth Godin is, he's very, very popular in the world of marketing. He's written some pinnacle works and recently came out with a new book on marketing. And one of the things he talks about is that he uses the analogy of thinking about the minimally viable product. This was a big movement in business to, instead of waiting until the whole thing is done, trying to get it out and in front of who your customers are. Well, he also then stresses then having a minimally an audience that you can target. I forgot the phrase that he uses. I wish I could remember it, but but that so many times we try to make a product or in this case, write for a mass audience, but the most mm-hmm. powerful movements, whether you're trying to influence change, if it's politics, if it's world problems, if it's selling something, whatever it is, that actually thinking about a real tight, tight targeted audience, that's the way today to really make something happen. And I wonder how much you think about that in terms of having us as writers think about our audience, not as a big mass of people, but down to a really, really tight, tight audience. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, on on the one hand, my ambitions are huge. Like I'd, I'd love the world to read my book and suddenly, you know, the light shine down from the heavens and we adopt my philosophies about teaching writing, but I can't write for the world because I can't communicate with the entire world mm-hmm. simultaneously. There's a different set of, as I, as I tell my students, needs, attitudes, and knowledge for different sets of audiences. And so I think, you know, when I write, I'm thinking about who am I trying to persuade, particularly this kind of writing, who am I trying to persuade or convince and what am I trying to persuade or convince them of? And in this case, you know, my audience is clearly people who, have asked a question like, why can't they write? And they, they might be, uh, you know, employers of people or business leaders, but they're, they're, they're also educators and teachers and parents and, and all those people. And in that sense, I've, I've begun to draw a boundary about who I'm, who I'm talking to and, and why I'm talking to them, but we can't just sort of wave a wand and, and find the universal communication tool. It's not Star Trek with the universal translator or anything like that. So for me in writing, and I think for, for to sort of your, your point about a minimal audience, it really is, what am I trying to accomplish? What am I saying? Who am I going to say it to that it matters to, that it has impact and it has currency? 
And in a lot of ways, that focus, at least I believe this to be the case, that focus is what then allows the message to resonate to audiences you may never have even intended. One of the thing that, things that consistently surprises me, having written for Inside Higher Ed for so long, is how often a, a post will escape the world of higher education. And I'll hear for somebody who is not a teacher, not a professor, not an administrator, not in higher education at all, but they've seen it and something has resonated, even though I'm highly conscious of writing for a higher education audience there. So yeah, you, 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 you have to kind of target, target somebody. If you don't target somebody, you're not targeting anybody. At least that's how I, I have to think of it when I write. And it's part of, to me, what you were saying earlier is that we have been in higher ed placing such a emphasis on very traditional academic writing standards, which for the vast majority of them, the better that they get it, it is not going to be the more broadly successful, whatever success is supposed to mean in the statement that, and I, I don't know if we necessarily exercise writing for different kinds of audiences ourselves. That's right. I mean, I often say I devalue academic writing. I love and values that underlie academic writing in terms of uh, using sources and making arguments uh, that appeal to ethos, pathos, and logos, and all those things. But then the forms we often ask students to, to perform in, and I, I do see it often as that way, a kind of performance, and students see it that way too, a kind of performance of knowledge or erudition as opposed to a kind of genuine creation and construction of ideas they don't perceive an audience for that often or the audience is a teacher or an abstraction. Mm -hmm. uh, we are creating scholarship. And I think where we're only asking students to write for abstractions and they are very used to this if they've been taking a lot of standardized assessments before they get to college, but this is fundamentally alienating from writing. Writing is a, is a, is a tool for thinking and writing is the tool I use to help me figure out what I have to say. And if, it's what I use writing for. Why wouldn't I encourage my students to do the same? Uh, now, it took me years to, years to bridge that gap. I thought I should be training them to do well on academic essays because that's what they were going to be asked to write in college. But, you know, over time, it just seemed less and less vital to help them do these things that in some cases, some of them are not going to be doing after they get out of my first year writing class. So, so doing well on that that very limited kind of performance just, just didn't seem worthy of our time. On the other hand, helping them practice their writing practices so they can communicate in other contexts so they can take what they learned in my class into a totally different course and analyze what's going on there. That felt just something much more interesting and much more relevant and vital. For the third time, I'm working with a group of doctoral students and we're writing a open textbook and just, I wanted to point out what you said about when you were, were talking so much about audience, and then yet so much we limit the audience to just this, so as you said, just the professor you'll turn it into. As soon as I have ever started to be able to somewhat successfully flip it to a different audience that isn't just me, I mean, it's amazing. Talk about increasing people's motivation. You talk about attitudes. Mm. I mean, that's such a big thing. I don't have to try to motivate them. I don't like, it's literally not a thought in the world. We, we had on a bullet somewhere that we should decide how to grade each other, have some sort of peer grade, but let's just not even become 
It's an eight-week class. As far as the time we're going to spend deciding on something as arbitrary as that anyway, generally by the time you get to that level, you're generally probably doing fine on your grades anyway, but it's the conversation right. is much more interesting, much more motivational, much more shaping what they're doing by thinking about who's going to hold this book in their hands or read it digitally, as you as you said. That's, that's right. If there's a genuine audience and a genuine need, and you can get students forgetting that they're doing an assignment for school, it will then turn into a better assignment all by itself. And, uh, you know, the goal for me, it was always to get students to stop thinking about that they're writing it and somebody's going to put a grade on it, that they're writing for an audience, they're writing to express themselves and their ideas and, and have an impact. And when that happens, they're learning. The artifact, particularly when we're talking about first-year students, may have issues. It will have issues because they're in a lot of cases, they're really trying that kind of knowledge creation, intellectual process on for the first time in any significant way. But once they've gotten a taste of it, it it really takes root. And what you're describing with your students is is that same thing. Like, oh, I get to do something that is going to exist. It's highly motivating. I mean, having just spent last year writing two books, I, I could never do that if I didn't think it was they were for people, that they were you know meant to impact the audience and and hopefully change minds. Or for those people who agree with me, they're armed with something that helps them articulate their beliefs. And, you know, students should have access to the same kinds of things that help them work as academics. I even think of it in terms of a kind of academic freedom. We believe academics need academic freedom to do their best work. And I don't see why students shouldn't have access to those same rights if our goal is for them to do their best work. This is the point in the show where we each get to share our recommendations, and I'm going to just take us in a totally different direction. <laughs> sure. Mine don't relate at all, although maybe they do, who knows. So one of the things I mentioned, I had been on a trip recently, and I I can get a little scattered. I know sometimes it may not sound like it, or though maybe it does, <laughs> but I get a little scattered with the whole receipts thing and expense reports and oh gosh. And I recently was able to hire an administrative assistant with my new role. And I thought, oh, I do not want to dump great. my own dysfunctions onto this poor person. And so I found an app before I went and it is just a game changer app. And I, I suspect that there are many apps like this. I didn't do an extensive comparison, but I see that it's available on all the popular uh, operating systems. So it's on Android and on, it even looks like Windows, whatever Windows is these days on a mobile app. And then also I got it on the iPhone. And what I love about it is it's just super easy to enter an expense and also to just take the picture of the receipt right there. You can either scan it or you can just literally take a picture from within the app. And then I can just throw it away because I have a, you know, I have a record of that. I don't have to worry about trying to, where am I going to keep this and my purse or whatever to keep track of it all. And the thing that I particularly liked about it is that I have a credit card now with the new job too. Big fancy over here. You had no idea what's become <laughs> since the last time we talked. Huh? So those, those I can sort out differently because she just has to reconcile those. And then I could have the ones that, the charges that wound up on my personal card somewhere else. There's all these different options for exporting. It's just, and it was really easy to learn how to use, but I can tell already it's going to be one of those apps that as I learn more about it, it's going to make my life easier and her life easier. And I really recommend checking out, not not necessarily this one, like I said, but just finding yourself a good 
expense tracking app makes all the difference in the world. And then just that habit of every single time before you even sit down to eat the food, you're <laughs> taking that quick picture of it. Yeah. So you can uh, reduce the cognitive load of trying to keep track of that stuff. I think it's going to be a big game changer for me. I already really was on the one trip, but I can multiply that times all the times I'll be traveling in the next year. And then the second one is also technology related. Another uh, one thing that I really have tried to reduce the friction on is when someone asks me a question, this could be a student asking me a question, it could be a faculty member, but wanting to spend the majority of my time in the actual helping and as little of my time on the actual technological aspect of replying. So if I, for example, were have to reply to an email and type out a big long description Versus just being able to have a screenshot and point an arrow, that's where you click to submit your assignment if that was the, the particular question. So mm-hmm. this this service is called Dropler. It's D-R-O-P-L-R. And what it is, is it just lives on my computer all the time up in my menu bar. And if I want to answer a quick question, I can just go up there and click and either record a screencast with my voice over it and explain something that way or do a quick screenshot of something and then draw an arrow or draw a circle, put a stamp on it or whatever. But the best part, there's lots of apps that do that kind of thing. But the best part about it is as soon as I say I'm done recording, it instantly copies a link to my clipboard that is that thing existing on the cloud. Oh, wow. So I mean, I just hit reply. Oh, here you go. This is what you want to do. And then I'm done. And it says that link has been copied to the clipboard and I paste it in and they can watch the video on the cloud or they can look at the screenshot or whatever it is. It's been absolutely amazing. There's all these other things you can do with it too. It's not an expensive service at all, but you can put your own logo up there if you want to customize it. So it's for your institution. You can have little boards for things and sort them in. There's something when I teach online classes or hybrid classes, I don't like to have recorded messages about a given week where I say, oh, this week we're looking at this, this, and this. I like to re-record it even if it's the same thing as the last time, but I just I think there's something authentic about doing that. You know, hey, just keeping sort of everyone know I'm here and, and having more presence in the class. And so I, this is going to make it that much easier for me. I just go up and click that little thing and show them what's going on this week. And then I've started to curate some of their own blog posts and share them with them. And Dropler is just making that really easy. So that's a service I recommend checking out. So I got two technology related ones, which I suppose really only have to do with having us write less than <laughs> so that well, when the writing we true. do what, can be. <laughs> what's sort of fascinating about Dropler is it relates to what we were talking about earlier with the shifting in literacy. And one of the skills that people have to have today is to know what are my options in terms of communicating within, you know, the the digital space. And Mm -hmm. so one of the things I I try to help students determine when I teach my courses is I'll have them write things that would be done much better in a different medium. Like I might have them write a set of instructions for a process early in the semester as a way to think about the writing process. And at the end of it, they'll be like, oh man, that was such a pain. That was so hard. And then my question is simply, well, what would you do instead? Like, oh, I would do a YouTube video. I could, it would take no time at all. I'm like, mm-hmm. exactly. So do that instead <laughs> yep. when you need to. So that's, uh, I think that's a great example of what we were talking about, that, that kind of Teaching students to write a proper email to the professor is fine, but a better tool is teaching people how to negotiate the demands of the situation and find the best tool that 
fills the need. So yeah, I'm excited about Dropbook too. And I don't even, I don't have any kind of big important stuff that I have to manage like you, but I'm checking that out the second we, we hang up with each other. It's really, I've heard about it for many years, but since I had other tools that did similar things, I thought, well, just as soon as it was installed, it became a part of multiple times a day using it. Mm-hmm. What do you have to recommend for us today? I know you've been you've been thinking about this since we talked about uh, having I you have, back on the show. So I have three, and one is going to hopefully be quick. One is a book. It's called Embarrassment and the Emotional Underlife of Learning by Thomas Newkirk. Read it recently, and it's one of those books where you sort of get into it, and I just kept nodding and underlining and writing brackets in the margins saying, yes, 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 yes. And it really is an exploration of the notion of how embarrassment plays a role in how we learn. And it's not only about writing, but a lot of it is about writing. And how when we acknowledge embarrassment and even perhaps share our own embarrassment with our students, that we can knock down some barriers to their learning. A lot of what I've discovered over the years is to share my own struggles with students with writing because they think that I've somehow reached this terminal competency that doesn't exist and that I don't have struggles anymore. And so when I point out that I do, it gives them permission to, to struggle as well. Uh, so I recommend that, Embarrassment by Thomas Newkirk. My second recommendation is a podcast, and I actually think it's highly related to education and learning, but maybe not on the surface. It's called The Armchair Expert, and it's hosted by Dex Shepard, the actor who's maybe best known from... Parenthood, the Parenthood TV show, it's probably even better known as Kristen Bell's husband, <laughs> and which he talks about often. And most of the episodes are really him talking to other famous people. But really what it is, is an exploration of kind of what's underneath how they became successful. And over and over again, the lessons of what it took to become a, a successful actor, or comedian, or, or performer applies so often to learning in general. I don't always agree with him. He sometimes makes me cringe and infuriates me, but he's very funny. He's super quick. He's quite smart. And the conversations, each episode is like over two hours, which is hard to believe, but they're really involving. They release on Monday and and I'm always eager to sort of hear who he's talking to. And I was shocked. Somebody else recommended it to me and I said, that guy? And I've become a huge fan. And I think it's a really great way to kind of reflect on on the world because that's kind of what he's doing with his friends and colleagues from his work. It's entertaining and often edifying. It, it causes me to, to think about, you know, what am I pursuing in my own life and why am I pursuing those things and, and how do we get there, even if I'm not going to become a, a famous Hollywood actor. Yeah. Uh, and my, my, my last recommendation is a band. Uh, called White Denim, and they're from Austin, Texas, and it's it's rock music, and it's pretty loud rock music, but it's been called progressive pop rock, like progressive rock from the 70s, only down to four-minute songs, and my love for this band is maybe inexplicable, and they're moderately popular, but I want them more popular just so they keep making music so I can keep listening. So if somebody else checks them out and likes them also, then I feel like I'm I'm helping myself. So consider that a, a purely selfish <laughs> recommendation. And 
while they've grown cultishly popular, they haven't gotten past that. And I wouldn't mind seeing the cult grow a little bit larger. Hmm, I love it. Well, I'm excited that I got to talk with you today. I know you've been a little under the weather, so I'm glad that you felt well enough today to have the conversation. And I don't think anyone listening is going to be able to tell that you weren't <laughs> feeling fabulous. And I'm excited because you're going to come back too. And so today you're talking about your newest book, but you want to just give us a little preview of you're going to come back and share about your next book. Yeah, so why they can't write is kind of the, I see it as the manifesto for how I think we should examine what we're doing when we're teaching writing and do things differently. And then in February, my next book comes out called The Writer's Practice, uh, Building Confidence in Your Nonfiction Writing. And that's sort of me putting my pedagogy where my mouth is. It's it's a, a book of writing experiences that I believe, if utilized, helps writers build those practices, the skills, attitude, attitudes, knowledge, and habits of mind of writers. And I really think it's a helpful way of, of introducing, developing writers to the kinds of things that if done will make them more confident and allow them to transfer what they learn from one writing experience to the next. So I'm excited about that. We've got some good advance notice and good publisher behind it. So yeah, I'll come back in February and we'll we'll talk about that some more. Sounds wonderful. Thanks for coming today. And just for, I feel like this has now become an ongoing conversation. And I really appreciate your contributions to my own pedagogy. Oh, I uh, love coming and I love listening every week. So I'm listening in on the conversation even when I'm not participating. <laughs> Thanks so much, John. Thank you. It was so great to get a chance to talk to John again. After we got off the phone, though, he told me about two podcasts. Well, he'd already shared about the... <laughs> the one of the podcasts on and then we started talking about more podcasts john what are you doing to me i don't have any more room for podcasts in my life all right i'm going in as soon as i'm done recording this closing i'm going in and downloading the two podcasts that he recommended uh he also did mention though that there is a promo code that you can get a discount by ordering his book from the publisher so i'll have that in the show notes at teaching in higher ed.com slash 233 And you can get that 20% off if you want to use that link. So thanks so much for listening. And John, always a pleasure to talk with you. I'm looking forward to our next conversation about your other book. So thanks to all of you for listening. I'll see you next time.